Welcome to episode 35 of the Media Sport podcast series, which is back and being rebooted in 2021 with a greater focus on the relationship between environmental communication, sustainability, sport and media. As always, I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, and it's a pleasure to be speaking with you again. Before I introduce this episode's guest, I'd like to thank both the Australian Research Council and the School of Media, Film and Journalism here at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia for their support, which makes this series possible. I'm joined by two guests for this episode, and thinking about their individual and combined contributions to scholarship, they are, to quote Ankerman's Ron Burgundy, kind of a big deal in my mind, and we're fortunate to be hearing from them. First, Dr. Rebecca Olive, an Australian Research Council Discovery Early Career Research Fellow, or ARC DECRA Fellow for short, who is based in the School of Human Movement and Nutrition Sciences at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. For international listeners, it's enough to know that the DECRA scheme is extraordinarily competitive and prestigious research fellowship. Rebecca has long been a talented and fightful scholar, and it's good to see the ARC, or the Australian Research Council, finally catching up with this fact. I draw your attention to her excellent project website, Moving Oceans, which can be found at movingoceans.com. This site outlines her efforts to create more ecological ways of thinking about humans as parts of oceans and coastal ecologies. Alongside Rebecca sits Professor Belinda Wheaton, a cultural sociologist in Tai Utaki Waiora School of Health at the University of Waikato in Hamilton. Aotearoa, New Zealand. Her widely cited research spans interdisciplinary areas in the sociology of sport and leisure, policy, youth studies, cultural and media studies, and gender studies. Belinda has long been producing high-quality research, and among her many books, articles, and chapters, I regard her 2013 book, The Cultural Politics of Lifestyle Sports, as a key marker that changed how we think about the relationship between sport and physical culture. Both Belinda and Rebecca share strong and distinctive feminist commitments and sensibilities in their research and teaching, and these are always welcome on the Media Sport podcast series. I've asked to speak with both of them about their work, and in particular, their co-editorship of a recently released special issue of the Journal of Sport and Social Issues. It is titled, Understanding Blue Spaces, Sports, Bodies, Wellbeing and the Sea. Remarkably, this is a two-issue special issue, with the first instalment having just been published. Part two will follow shortly. Rebecca and Belinda, congratulations on the special issue or issues, and thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for that very kind introduction. (laughs) Okay, let's just start with the title. What are blue spaces and why are they significant? You want me to start? Okay, Um, sure. Um, Blue space uh, is a term that seems to have emerged uh, over the last few years. I think it came particularly from the geographers, the cultural geographers working in place. Um, But it's kind of become a popular, I guess, way of conceptualizing the differences between watery space, nature, and I say nature in inverted commas, um, spaces, to what was first looked at uh, more often was green spaces. So forests and hills and mountains and parks. And there was quite a bit of research emerging, most of it pretty interdisciplinary, around whether those spaces um, 
have particular benefits for people's well-being and health. Um, and that research, well, essay geographers was also coming from quite quantitative policy studies and so on, and, and I suppose um, medical geographies as well. Uh, and then I, I guess it moved into the distinction between blue and green space, with blue space referring to oceans, but lakes, rivers, and also uh, inverted commas, you know, human-made um, spaces such as canals, reservoirs. Uh, and so on. Um, some people might do or do even think about swimming pools, but I think for me, it's really more about the, 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 those other kinds of larger bodies of water. Um, and it's it's a useful term, although clearly the boundary between a blue and a green space is not quite as uh, fixed as those two terms would suggest. And um, when we are using it, I, I, I it, particularly in this special issue, we're speaking about ocean-based sea-based blue spaces but of course the beaches and any green space alongside that kind of is not distinct in many ways you know there's a there's an overlap now in terms of what the reader finds when they pick up the special issue or, or log on to the special issue as it may be like what what in terms of topics focus case studies what you know what what, what are they going to find we tried to think about what we're not seeing in the field. And as Belinda said, a lot of the studies have been very quantitative and focused on human health in quite quantitative ways and quite sort of instrumental ways as well. And so we were interested in thinking about the more everyday kind of ways that oceans and coasts in our case impact our lives and our health and well-being. And we we wanted to open those terms up as well to think about social well-being, cultural well-being, emotional well-being, as well as um, mental health and physical health, although they're part of it too. And we also wanted to think about these spaces in more critical ways as well, because a lot of it's very celebratory when it when we come to talking about oceans and health and quite romanticised as well. Even the way we call it blue spaces sort of puts aside the fact that many water spaces are brown or grey mm. or muddy and clouded, um, polluted, you know. So we really wanted to engage with those complexities. The other thing we wanted to think about was to get away from this idea that oceans are um, placeless, that, you know, people, we wanted to look at how it can be quite localised and place-based so that people's experiences of ocean, oceanic and coastal blue spaces can be really, really varied depending on their context, whether that's their nationality, their cultural history, um, their spiritual relationship as well, or even their access. So we really wanted, we sort of, our call, our call was to get authors to engage a lot more critically. Um, and so we've got a real diversity of paper. We're, th we're thrilled with it. We were really excited by the papers that came in from, um, you know, postgraduate scholars to professors, from um, people uh, in different places around the world. It's still quite sort of Northern Hemisphere focused, I think. We, we wouldn't pretend that it's not, um, but we're looking at issues of gender and, and sex and gender and, and sexuality. There's issues around race and ethnicity, um, colonization, um, polluted, pollution, um, and lots of different sports as well from sailing and swimming and surfing and waka ama. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, there's a lot in there. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry, you, you just said waka ama. Could you, for those of listeners who are unfamiliar with what that is, could you just explain what that is? Well, waka ama is a sport that's very prevalent in New Zealand, so I might let Belinda out on that. <laughs> So, yeah, that's fine. Waka is um, uh, like an outrigger canoe, and there's actually several different types of, of canoe paddling, um, you know, whether it's four people, two people, etc. cetera. But um, the, it's become really popular in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand over, over the last 20 years. Again, it's like a resurgence of an indigenous um, Maori uh, form. And uh, the waka is central to um, Aotearoa because uh, the, a, a Maori arrived in the waka and it's a key way in which uh, the way in which people identify with their particular iwi and um, the, 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 it is through the waka that their descendants arrived on. So it, um, it's, I guess it's, it's become very prevalent and also important in terms of uh, the politics of autonomy, of visibility, and uh, broader sense of cultural identity. Mm. Yeah, I'm always interested in the relationship between how scholars come in or, or come across particular topics. Now, you're talking to a person who would be lucky to get wet once a year, except when in the shower or the bathtub. So what is, I suppose, you know, in terms of why you understand the significance of blue spaces or oceans and waterways in the way you do, how does that connect, I suppose, autobiographically or your experiences of observing others? How have you come to be the two who would put together such a comprehensive special issue? Well, my, um, how I came to it was through my own lived experiences of growing up in a coastal town and where in northern New South Wales, so a very famous small tourist town, famous for surfing and swimming. <laughs> um, and it was always a part of my life. I walked to and from school along the beach often enough. I, I spent weekends on the beach. That's where I met friends and had all kinds of um, experiences and learned learned to respect the beach. I, live, I grew up on quite a dangerous beach, so you couldn't, for me, I couldn't just jump in. You had to really think about things. It was dangerous in terms of the tides and currents, but it was also dangerous because it was quite isolated and the town I grew up in had a lot of transient movement of the population. So I wasn't really allowed to go to the beach by myself because of human threat on the beach too. You know, beaches have this other, other kind of threat going on where <laughs> all sorts of like um, sexual assault and violence in particular can occur on a beach. So the beach was a big part of my life in a, in a whole heap of ways. Um, I swam a lot when I was young and, you know, ocean swimming and playing in the ocean. And then, but I didn't start surfing, which was the point of my earlier, well, still what I focus on in my research now, till my mid twenties and being out in the water for extended period of times immersed in it or set submerged, maybe part, partially submerged when you're on a surfboard and seeing the politics that happened out there um, was so fascinating to me. Um, and slowly I came to focus more, not just on the politics amongst people, but I kind of had to stop looking at that because it could be quite overwhelming when you look at the politics amongst people. So I started to also want to look at the politics of what was happening for me with the water, with the creatures that live there, with the, the plants and the animals and the changes to the coastline. Um, so that's really... <laughs> where my interest came from it kind of grows I think as you you put your I think as a researcher you end up putting your attention so deeply into something and sometimes it's not till you've answered those questions for yourself 
to some level of adequacy that you start to open up the field of vision a little bit more. You know, I remember one of my mentors once said to me, knowledge is cumulative. And I feel like that's what these projects have been for me over time. They've, they've grown to include more and to develop more complexity and nuance in how I can think about in Belinda's terms, the cultural politics of lifestyle sports <laughs> as they happen in blue spaces. So with that in mind, working with Belinda for me is a really, it's, it's a wonderful working relationship because, you know, we're, we have a lot of those same politics in place, especially around feminist politics, but also in our work in terms of other theories as well. And Belinda? Oh, um, like back, I, I am somebody who's always loved the water. I did grow up in central London, so not as an early child, but I, I was but exposed. you had the river. You had the I river. Did, I did have the river. I never went in it, looked at it, yeah. But I but I did get exposed to um, being by the sea quite early. My dad was a keen sailor, and that, that love continued, and I moved to the out of London to the ocean or to the, to the harbour side, but... Um, you know, 20 years later, and I've, I've lived on the water ever since. And like back, um, I'm, a, I'm really keen. I do a lot of different water sports, including surfing. Um, and I think I probably, while always very aware of some of the constraints, I guess, for people in terms of economic, social, cultural, um, in, in terms of who uses those, those places and spaces and why, it, it was doing research uh, for that book a while back now the um around african-american surfers that really got me thinking about some some issues that i was so not unaware of but i hadn't thought through the implications of so how uh, formal segregation um and and race in the usa had had such a profound impact today still in the ways in which particular communities um have access to culturally as well as in all, all these other ways um, and how they relate to these places. So for me, that was, a, I guess, a bit of a turning point um, in terms of my thinking about blue spaces. And then uh, Beck and I ended up working together uh, for a short period of time and we both went surfing together. Uh, so I, I suppose in many ways, uh, the personal and our interests came, started to come together. And uh, yes, we been doing different projects and some ongoing projects now so that's been um it's been good we bring different different perspectives i think um that's been really uh productive it's really interesting listening to you both i mean you're both touching on issues of access and to water actually interestingly enough in different ways and also sometimes seen, sometimes unseen sites or barriers to that access and what happened. And then, of course, the politics of what happens once you're actually in the water, as, as Beck was talking about. Now, this seems to connect with the concept you present in your opening article to the special issue, which is hydrophobia. Now, what does that concept sort of get at and why does it matter socially and politically? Some of the stuff that we see as being really good for mental well-being, for example, is things to do with or, you know, the, the ability to get have a different, literally a different perspective. When you look across an ocean at a horizon, whenever I look at that, I feel like every possibility is available to me. That's how I felt growing up. But then after, when I lived in, in Aotearoa, I was looking at the ocean every day and I ended up feeling the ocean started to look a bit like death as well. 
and that was a new thought for me. <laughs> Shows you how limited we can be, right, in our understandings of stuff that's so specific. But I just, I couldn't bear looking at an open ocean anymore because it just looked like a desert. It looked like it cannot sustain human life in and of itself. And I hadn't really thought about that. And coming from Australia, you know, we watched boats smash on Christmas Island of refugees trying to seek asylum on Australian territory. And that also had a really big impact on me in thinking about oceans in this completely different, absolutely not romanticized way, which was that they're terrifying. So all the things that give me perspective in terms of losing concern about my problems. So the depth, the scope of it, the volume of water, the, the lovely sound of the waves and all this kind of thing very easily can be terrifying for people as well. I know how to swim. I have a whole history of experiences in, in oceans that I can draw on to, to assume that I'm going to be pretty safe. Never completely. I always, I know that, you know, you, you, it's very easy to have experiences where you go, oh, I could die. I could die very easily here because we are literally out of our depth when we're, once our feet are off the, you know, the bottom, we're out of our element. And it's really easy to romanticize it when you have quite a positive affirming relationship to oceans from which you get so much. And I think that's what in blue spaces research, most people who are in it get that. I mean, that happens a lot in sports studies, right? Is a lot of people are studying sports that have given so much to them. But it's really important that we are critical about these spaces and we do think about not only why people might not want to access them, because we know they can be very good for our physical and, and mental health, but also what are the barriers that stop people who want to. It's interesting you mentioned the, well, the horrors of the gulags that the Australian government runs offshore and, you know, was elected re-elected knowing that we're running them but it also speaks to the notions of you know mobility some people have to move some people don't um, I think of uh, Zygmunt Bauman's distinction between the tourist and the vagabond you know in, in a, but it also talks to sort of this notion of that movement occurring transnationally and if you think about the flow of tides and waters and all these things that you know like a real feature of your special issue is a, a focus on the transnational which connects up with uh, an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary set of perspectives. I says, what does that offer us that perhaps, you know, a more contained disciplinary or national cultural focus would? Like, as I say, what does that bring to the reader and our understanding of how you think about these subjects? That's a, re that's a really good question. Um, I, I think there's probably lots of parts to it. What, one, one thing I would... I could start by saying is, um, for me, I've lived in Aotearoa, New Zealand now for six years, uh, and it has completely changed my outlook on many things, but particularly understanding the relationship between well-being and most things, including the sea, including bodies, including sport, including people. Uh, I've learned um, from my Maori colleagues about um, Maori worldviews, Mataranga, and a, a completely different relationship that Maori people have to understanding both well-being and the um, environment and other people and other things, more than human things. And so I, 
Um, I've, you know, one of the things I've been really engaged with is trying to think through, and, and Beck and I've done this together as well, or we're doing this together, how that impacts on us as people uh, who are, um, I guess, in, uh, I don't know what a bowman would call us, but we're certainly um, col in, col from, from colonized, the, the countries that, well, I'm certainly from the country that colonized Aotearoa. And that's a really uncomfortable um, situation, I feel, on a personal level. And it's something that I'm trying to um, deal with, I guess, in my everyday relationships and in my relationships with the ocean. So that's, I guess, one thing that would, would suggest, yes, national contacts are really important understandings of well-being and the ocean and all those other things that we've talked about from the barriers through to um, all the other interdisciplinary you know ways this research can go needs in my view completely different knowledges if you're doing it in Aotearoa than if I was doing it back in the UK and to some extent when I when I did it in did some research in the US as well um, but then again it's actually so beneficial I think um, to be thinking through concepts with um, that, I suppose some people would say transdisciplinary. I'm, you know, certainly trying to think through how different knowledge systems uh, speak to each other, where there are gaps, where they collide, where where they come into conflict, um, and I. I feel that's really productive um and i've had some i've had some experiences other research projects i've been involved with here in um Otero, looking at actually fresh water uh working with ecologists um scientists and maori uh communities and iwi and oh my goodness it's so complicated um but so interesting i i'm not sure that totally gets at what you were it did i don't really speak to the the transnational there but i think i tried to speak to the the the, the articulation of the local with with the more than local mm. and for me i think i've like more and more thinking about water and thinking about oceans is starting to seep into my language <laughs> but also how I start to think about the problems and so thinking about these I couldn't do this work on my own just from my position because it's too big it's too as Belinda said it's too complex I can't represent it all on my own I mean it would be an entire lifetime's work to even start to scratch the surface of it or dip into the surface of it so working with scholars whose knowledge challenges my assumptions um, whether that's people working in um, like quantitative quite like science lab lab-based researchers um, or if it's other people in humanities and social sciences disciplines as well who come at it from really different positions and I thought fun working with Belinda because, you know, <laughs> we have some pretty robust discussions about this stuff too. We don't always agree immediately and we kind of work through ideas to see where we get to um, in relation to each other because as similar as we are in so many ways, we're also really different um, and have different experiences. So I just find that working, like reading across disciplines, reading across various kinds of work across national contexts and across the different problems that people are having with water is 
it makes like in a selfish way, <laughs> makes my work much better. Um, but also it's a really, it's a genuine way of starting to get into the problems a lot more in their complexity and of just, you know, I mean, even Belinda's there talking about discomfort and I keep thinking of Haraway's stuff, the stay with the trouble. And that line's quite effective, I think, in talking about this to just go, yeah, this is a problem and to be comfortable with it, you know, not comfortable, but to be uncomfortable with it being a problem. And then to understand that we're not going to get to a simple solution. There's no single answer here. There's just lots of different perspectives on ways that we can go. And in particular, to recognise that most of the solutions um, that we're coming at different problems are from Western ontologies, Western, you know, Europe, ontologies based in um, European philosophy, which is where the work Belinda's talking about in her collaborations with Maori colleagues who come from a very different ontological perspective, starts to really challenge the, you know, some of the more especially quantitative disciplines who, who aren't thinking that way. Part of the reason I asked to speak to you, one, is I just really like the special issue. And, you know, some, that's enough reason as far as I'm concerned. But beyond that, I'm not someone who reads deeply into some of the literatures you're working with. So it's very interesting. There's something new to learn there. So if you were talking to people possibly a bit like myself who who, who aren't familiar with some of this, like, what are, what are they going to learn about sport, physical activity, leisure, the body, well-being, you know, that they possibly don't know are present in terms of what, what your authors and you are revealing. Belinda, do you want to... Okay, well, I, I mean, I can start in terms of sport, and I guess, you know, this is a point I've been banging on about for a very long time, but, you know, what is sport? What, how do, you know, how do we find it? define it? Who gets to define it? Um, what matters? And, you know, we're certainly both working in a sphere quite different from thinking about mediated sport uh, or mainstream mediated sport where we're arguing that what people do particularly informally in their everyday lives really matters it's it's really important and um although some people may not call surfing a sport at all or waka, um you know it, they are physical cultural practices that i would argue are you know um, types of sport and there's certainly physical practices where bodies are, are, are centrally um, important and are being I guess both disciplined and also maybe liberated in in the ways that um, scholars of sport have been talking about in many other ways for a long, a long time um, so these are these are really prevalent activities as well. These are things people do a lot of the time. You know, swimming is probably one of the most, if you look at the active people survey kind of stuff, is one of the most popular activities in many countries around the world. Um, so we might still think that rugby is what defines us in this country, but actually, you know, a lot more people swim than play rugby. So, you know, that's, that's one, I guess, one part of it. Um, just to add to that, and then Beth, I'll let Beth add to it. In terms of well-being, I do think it's really important for sports scholars to be thinking about well-being because it's being used so much in discourse right now about uh, why sport matters. Um, you know, the, there are all these, these political shifts, but I would say Australia, New Zealand, uh, and the UK, um, you know, the well the well-being area has 
become really prevalent in terms of engaging young people, in terms of obesity, in terms of, you know, and and around the pandemic, you know, the balance between our well-being and, you know, the pandemic has shown us in so many places how these very taken for granted everyday experiences are, are really important. I actually got my students uh, just before the first lockdown as part of one of the papers I was doing to do these little video diaries of a blue or green space and then to use that through their, their lockdown to try and reflect on uh, what they kind of missed about ev ev the, the very everyday mundane um, forms of physical activity. Uh, and so I think these these are very important when we think about what well-being is on, on all these levels, the spiritual, the cultural, the um, as well as the kind of more traditional sort of healthy bodies kind of aspects. Mm. And I'd pick up on that point around Belinda's one about rights, sport matters, and to totally follow on from both her points, which I absolutely agree with, <laughs> phew, <laughs> is to emphasise that, you know, especially a point around sport, around how we think about sport. Because sport, we I use it as a nifty little word that actually captures such a wide range of experiences, which is what Belinda was saying too. And my interest has never, ever been in organised sport, competitive sport. I'm not, I have... I really don't have an interest <laughs> in that at all. I'm interested in the stuff people do on their own. It's more that, you know, Belinda's work on lifestyle sports, like things that are often very individual or they're loosely organised in a social group and they're something that people do on their own schedule and on their own time and, and to great significance within their life. And that really reflects my cultural studies kind of positioning. So I'm interested in what these activities do in sports studies, we often think about human health and it's all, it's been often linked to like, what can sport do for you? <laughs> Whereas uh, what I'm finding and what, like it certainly reflects my interest is what can sport, what can our participation in sport from which we get so much, both from the uh, our participation, our own personal physical participation in it, but also increasingly we understand from the spaces themselves when we talk about the benefits of being in green and blue spaces. But my, my current stuff's really interested in like how that changes our relationships to those places and, and looks in more integrated ways at, in this case, ocean human health as entirely intertwined. So to think about what can sport do for, do for nature, to put it in very crude <laughs> terms. Um, so yeah, I'm really interested in that. And the other thing about being in water for sport is, you know, I said it before, you're out of your element, you're out of your depth. It's it's not simple. Your life is always suddenly very precarious because if you get hurt and you fall over and hit your head or something, there's not a simple outcome there of someone just coming and scooping you up. You might be face down. It might be hard for people to get to you. You can't control the kinds of animals that you're going to have an encounter with. It's very unfamiliar. I mean, we know so little about oceans, right? What's often There's often people showing, we know more about space than we do about deep oceans kind of thing. And how little we know about, you know, especially deep water. So I find those activities really interesting because we know so little about the geographies and the elements and the ecologies in which they're being done, but mostly how humans go into those spaces is through sport and physical activity. So, okay, researchers maybe are going out to do research, but otherwise we've got sailing and swimming and surfing and kayaking and canoeing and 
and so on and so on. Fishing, fishing is mm. a great one, or even strolling along a coastline. So I think that it's such a rich area of inquiry because starting with the physical activity and how physical activities engage people in those spaces puts you immediately in the ecology. And especially when you use this word health, you know, that, that word expands as, and, and well-being, those words can easily be expanded out to encompass the health and well-being of the, the multi-species ecologies in which we're getting so much benefit just by going for a swim. <laughs> Usually I ask all my guests, um, is there a book or something you recommend or all our listeners should read? I'm going to answer that question for you. The answer is the special issue, everyone. <laughs> but um, I suppose the obvious thing is one of the wonderful parts about doing research, particularly in, in the way you've done it and working with so many collaborators, is it leads on to the next question. For both of you, where... Where's the special issue led you? What's next? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I'll let Beck talk about what she's doing in her ongoing research. A couple of things that we're doing together. Um, we we did write a piece along with um, two other uh, New Zealand colleagues uh, where we tried to take some of these ideas into um a positivistic journal, essentially. Um, it was quite a challenge. We got that. So it's published in Environmental Research and Public Health as a special issue on ocean human health and well-being. And we wrote a paper about coastal communities, leisure and well-being, advancing a transdisciplinary agenda for understanding ocean human relationships. So um, that's out there with our co-authors, Jordan uh, Watt, and Robin Cairns. Um, um, and then um, Beck and I have been working on a project really uh, that started before this special issue and is still ongoing. It's one of those definite slow scholarship um, types of pieces of work where we're really trying to uh, understand relationships between people, places, surfing and colonisation within Aotearoa New Zealand. Um, and we have, as I said, we've been doing it for a while. We're just starting to really work on a couple of those um, articles. Um, and I think probably the first article that will really be published is a kind of methodology reflection on how we have uh, negotiated our relationships to place as white, what's the term you use? It's great, Beck, settler. Settler colonizers. Um, yeah, and I've also, I guess the other thing that I've been doing alongside this is going back to, or this has inspired me to do, is to go back to some of the research I did, oh gosh, back in the 90s around surface against sewage. So I, I, I was interested in surface against sewage, which is an environmental group that's been very successful in the UK at um, challenging the water boards to stop polluting um, the oceans set up by a bunch of surfers. My interest in that initially was really because I was interested in politics, protest, and youth movements. But surfers against sewage have continued their work and are quite extraordinary. And that's led me to um, just recently to do some more work around surfing. But I guess the question I came at this time was then I was like, oh, look at surfers. So I was being a bit evangelical evangelical you know they are doing these great things and this chapter which is in a book for brian uh, brian wilson and brad millington that just just came out last year i think um actually why aren't surfers doing more so i've kind of changed where i was at and i look really at the surf industry 
in particular, uh, wondering why it's been so slow to challenge some really toxic practices. Well, I think this collection for me probably made me think more about or see that we're not talking about methodology enough necessarily. There are some great scholars thinking about methodology um, to do, and there's some excellent papers in the special issue as well by Lisa Hunter and Lindsay Studley and Eastie Britton and Ronan Foley in particular and Kate Moles as well, really, and Cliff Evers and others. <laughs> um, so thinking about how are we thinking empirically in the water. So like I'm getting pretty into that at the moment. One of my questions is how do you even write this? Like how do you, I think about it every time I go swimming, I'm like, how am I going to write this? Mm. How do you use words to talk about this? Because I'm also, I've got another project around Swimming Wild where it's about swimming and literature and it's so romanticised. It's just like, just it's a lot when you read it you know it's beautiful but it's, I, it's not my kind of writing really because I, I don't I don't like things that are evangelical you know um, so yeah I'm trying to think how do, how do you write water in a way that's really relatable to people um, and so that's a question of accessibility in a way too but it's also a question sorry to use this word but of authenticity <laughs> like an authentic representation of how people are experiencing something or or that they could it's uh they, it's relatable maybe is a better way to say that. So I'm really interested in that at the moment because I'm not a photographer or a videographer. So I can't, that's just not me. I can't communicate that way. So thinking about that. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Definitely more work that's not global North um, is a big lack in my, my knowledge um, for sure. And certainly in, in the body of work around blue spaces, I think it's really lacking and it's starting to shift. You know, people are really reaching out or, or being more open to hearing about it or we're starting to read more widely as well. You know, it's, it's a combination of our, our limitations but also what we have access to, in, in my case, English. Um, so it'd be great to be able to read more diverse um, con contextual literatures as well and also these different ontologies. I think that's been really important and for us here in you know in um, Australia and with Aotearoa and in the sort of Asia Pacific where you know these are these are colonized countries and western ontologies Aotearoa is different but still dominate a lot of the problem solving so yeah trying to see how different people are approaching this that, that come from their own way of being in the world and their own cultural values. And for me, that's the problem I'm trying to solve, I suppose, in, in myself and the philosophies that have shaped my worldview. I'm trying to figure out how do we unpack that in ourselves because I don't want to start engaging in heinous examples of cultural appropriation as I, as I work through ideas. So how can I you know, change my own thinking. And for me, that's what these activities allow us to do is really challenge our ontologies. And so that's kind of like, that's got me pretty jazzed at the moment. And I think in terms of reading, like um, going back to Belinda's point around a lot of blue space stuff coming from geography, Philip Steinberg and Kimberly Peters work on wet ontologies has been really amazing and continues to be. I mean, Kimberly Peters works, she's such a wonderful scholar, but them together, it's really really exciting and I'm also am really I find a lot of value in Clifton Ever's work on polluted leisure and he you know um I'm I'm looking at stuff around plastics and I've been looking at the environmental movement and and I'm starting to look at things to do with chemicals as well so yeah I'm really I think his work on that is really 
really important and um, yeah, ahead of the curve in, in what people are looking at. Rebecca and Melinda, it's been an absolute ple pleasure to speak with both of you. Thanks for your time. And um, I can only you know recommend to everyone listening, please access that special issue in journalists bought and social issues. <laughs> Thanks, Brett. Thank you.